We'll get this show started. I want to welcome you today to our church family and others who may be watching and hope that uh, you had a wonderful celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ this last Sunday. I'd also like to thank those of you who have responded to my messages, particularly last week um, for my Easter message. I just want you to know how encouraging it is to know that the sermons I'm sharing are making an impact on your life. And, and I really do appreciate you letting us know here at the church. Um, some things I want to remind the church family of. First of all, um, we mailed out your ballots for annual elections this past week and uh, want to remind you to fill those out and mail them back into the church. We ha- hope to have all those returned to us by April 30th so that we can tally the results and uh, then put those results in the annual report that you'll be receiving. I also want you to know that our district superintendent called uh, just today. He asked me a number of questions about how it was going. Um, I had a good report. Uh, I'm proud of you, our people. I know a number of you are making efforts to stay in contact with one another. Um, as needs arise and you know about those needs, you're meeting them. I know one of the things I an- announced in previous weeks was that if somebody in the church has a need of some kind, um, please call the church and let us know and we'll see that that need is met. Well, we've received no calls. And I think it's because you're doing such, such a good job of taking care of each other. And I, I want to commend you uh, for that. Also, uh, our district superintendent said, well, how's your giving? Um, and I said, fantastic. Uh, our, our, our people have stepped up to the plate. Some are giving more than they usually do. Um, and uh, we're just thrilled that we have not had to look elsewhere like some are to the, to the CARES uh, Act or loan that, that they're giving for churches to pay salaries and things like that. We're in a good place financially. Um, our giving is staying at a high level. And um, we are certainly grateful uh, to God and to you for your faithfulness in that regard. So thank you and encourage you. Uh, to be mindful of that and, and keep up the good work. Well, just want you to know that uh, today and over the coming weeks, w- we will be looking at the ministry of Elijah. Uh, you'll find the story of Elijah in 1 Kings, and I'll be sharing a passage of Scripture from 1 Kings in just a few moments. But before uh, I share the message, I'd like us to pray together. Father, we come to you today with grateful hearts. You know, in the midst of life's worst, most challenging, most difficult, we can always find things to be thankful for. We are thankful for your grace, your mercy, your protection, your provision, your forgiveness, for the blood of Jesus that has not lost its power, for the fact of the resurrection. Jesus was dead. He was buried. He was raised again to new life. And because of what Christ has done for us, we too have the promise of new, of eternal life. We thank you for the truth of your word, how it speaks to our situations right now, today, in the places where we live. I thank you for the body of Christ. I thank you for the way our people 
are ministering faithfully to one another, and as opportunities arise, ministering to others in their neighborhoods and in the community. And I pray that the messages that are shared and the love that we show to others will have a godly impact in the lives of people. We are praying that when this is all over and we can gather together again, people who've been touched by the ministry of our church will say, I want to go there and see what's happening. I I want to find out what the Longmont Church of the Nazarene is about. So we pray that this time that may look so difficult to us um, may look to, to us like a bad thing, will actually result in bearing fruit for the kingdom and the growth of the kingdom through this, our local church. Again, bless your word to our hearts today. May we have open ears to hear what your Holy Spirit is saying to us and ask all these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, at the point where we pick up the scripture today, the nation is in trouble. Oh, the economic outlook is good and relationships with other countries are working out. But the nation is still in trouble. See, the problem is internal. As internal as it could possibly get because it's a spiritual problem. The moral fiber of the country is almost completely eroded away and no one seems to care, much less try to do anything about it. Which brings us to our text today, and you'll find that in 1 Kings, and we'll be reading from chapter 16 through the first, first part of verse 1 in chapter 17. That's 1 Kings, chapter 16, we'll be reading verses 29 through 34, and then the first part of verse 1 in chapter 17. And the, the, the title, the subtitle over the passage that I'm going to be reading to you at this point says, Ahab becomes king of Israel. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ithbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and to worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. In Ahab's time, Hiel, son of Bethel, rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve. And we're going to stop there. In less than a short century, the kingdom of God's special people has digressed from righteous rulership to the most overt and rampant evil. On the throne of the nation of Israel now sat a monarch so wicked and perverse 
that he had the unenviable distinction of being the one who, and we quote from the scripture here, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. His name was Ahab. And as a wickedness goes, he was at the top of the list. None who had ruled previously had the penchant for perverseness that Ahab did. It was as though he was addicted to evil. Wickedness was a way of life for him. The only other one who rivaled and possibly succeeded Ahab in depravity was his own queen Jezebel. She was fierce, vicious, hateful, and her very name even today has connotations of one who is conniving, vindictive, and ruthless. Our text tells us that Ahab considered it a trivial thing to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. To understand that statement, we need a little bit of history. We go back to Solomon, the son of David. In the first part of his reign, he was a godly man, but as, as years moved on, he became apostate and, and worship, began worshiping the goddess Ashtaroth and the gods Molech and Chemosh. Ahijah the prophet comes to Jeroboam, who was an official that served under Solomon, and informs Jeroboam that the kingdom will be taken from Solomon, and ten tribes will then be given to Jeroboam. So he rebels against Solomon, and then has to flee for his life to Egypt until Solomon's death. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, inherits the throne and decides that he will rule harshly, at which point ten tribes give their allegiance to Jeroboam, who's now returned from Egypt, while Rehoboam rules only over Judah and Benjamin. Jeroboam then makes Shechem his, his capital, and now we read from 1 Kings chapter 12. It says, Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel who brought you out of Egypt. He set up one in Bethel and the other in David. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. We're speaking of the golden calves here. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests for all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the festival held in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing the calves he had, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And at Bethel, he also installed priests at the high places he had made. On the fifteenth day of the eighth month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. That then is what they're referring to in this passage when it says that Ahab considered it a trivial thing to commit 
the, son, the, the, the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. So that there, then there's following Solomon, Rehoboam, and Jeroboam, there's then a succession of kings over Israel, which lead actually to a downward spiritual spiral, all following the idolatrous worship practices that Jeroboam had undertaken. Until finally we get to Omri, the father of Ahab. And here's what it says about him in chapter 16, verse 26. But Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. And now we have Ahab, who has set a new standard for the practice of evil beyond that of his father. The nation of Israel had strayed farther and farther from God. Enter Elijah, God's man for the times. He literally bursts onto the scene. There is no scripture, no background leading up to this point concerning Elijah. He has no pedigree, no lineage given, no son of, no reference to his prophetic calling. The NIV says he is a Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead. Gilead was the territory east of the Jordan where the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh had settled um, as the people entered the land of Canaan. If you read an older version of this verse, um, chapter 17, verse 1a, it says, Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead. Because of that language, inhabitants of Gilead, commentators have a variety of views on Elijah's place of origin. Apparently, there is no record of a place named Tishbe in Gilead. But there was a place called Thisbe in the territory of Naphtali in the region of Galilee. Or, because Gilead was east of the Jordan, there were a number of foreigners who, who were living there, and it was possible that Elijah might have been a Gentile, maybe an Ishmaelite, which would have been humiliating to the Jews he confronted with God's message. Can you imagine a Gentile confronting the Jews about their sin? Well, whatever his place of origin, he's, cho- he's God's chosen spokesman. His name literally, literally means, my God is Jehovah. He stands in stark contrast to the darkness of his day. One burning with indignation against the blackness of the day that he lived in. Elijah stands apart from other Old Testament prophets in that there are no writings attributed to him and he made no proclamations regarding future events. We see Elijah in this setting, a bold contrast between goodness and evil, righteousness and wickedness. It will be a time of epic confrontation not seen since Moses confronted Pharaoh. As God had been in the past and would be again in the future, he was faithful to send a spokesman to cry out against the spiritual decay of the day that Elijah lived in. Elijah was a fearless voice to the leadership of Israel, an agitation who spoke out for a return to the government covenant God had made with his people. 
There's a contrast here between greatness and God, the greatness and godliness of the prophet and the corruptness of the culture that he lived in. Religious, moral, and social deterioration was consuming Israel. The entire body and life of God's chosen nation were dying under the influence of inner moral corruption as exemplified in their very own king, Ahab. Ahab had blatantly rejected Jehovah, the God of Israel. His marriage to Jezebel was undertaken with complete disregard for God's prohibitions against such marriages. He had married outside the Jewish nation. He'd married someone who worshipped false gods. Without hesitation, he plunged headlong into the appalling rituals and sexual orgies of Baal and Ashtoreth. Baal means owner or lord. Ahab introduced Baal Marquart, lord of Tyre and Sidon, to Israel. As such, he was openly rejecting God as owner and lord of Israel. Baal was the god of weather and fertility, who was believed to enable the earth to produce crops and people and animals to produce offspring. Ashtaroth was the god of fertility, sexual love, and war. She was the female counterpart to Baal. The worship of these gods included sexual immorality, prostitution, and in some cases, with the worship of Baal, the sacrifice of children or babies. It would be nice to say that those forms of worship went away long ago, but in reality, they still exist. Only now the gods we worship have names like sexual freedom, economic expediency, convenience, choice, the right to control my body. Jezebel was the daughter of Ethbaal, king of, of the Sidonians. She had grown up worshipping Baal and Ashtaroth. Through her influence, a temple of Baal was built in Samaria and was stuffed with hundreds of priests. Jezebel was not content to bring her gods with her and worship in private, but was determined to make Baal worship the religion of Israel. She would stop at nothing to achieve her goal, even to the point of killing those who continued to worship Jehovah God. Over and over, God had warned Israel against pursuing the gods and goddesses of Canaan. Again and again, they had been challenged to separate themselves from the corruption of the heathen cults. Repeatedly, they had been told to turn their backs. Excuse me. Repeatedly, they had been told to turn their backs on the Lord in pursuit of pagan practices. And that meant to invite destruction. So when they turned their backs on God, they were setting themselves up for destruction. But the warnings had fallen on deaf ears. The sexual perversion and temporal prostitution of both men and women, the greed for gain, the addiction to rebellion and violence had been embraced by Ahab and Jezebel and their subjects. It was an hour of desperate spiritual and moral darkness for Israel. And so, 
As God often does in these situations, he found a solitary man, a dauntless crusader to send to his people. The man would challenge Ahab and call Israel to repentance. It would be the only thing that would save her. The only remedy from utter ruin. Now, we need to take a bit of an interlude here because in chapter 16, verse 34 that I read to you, it's dealing with the rebuilding of Jericho and it seems out of place, like it has nothing to do with the rest of the story. In reality, it's, a, it's an illustration of, of how far people had strayed from God and what little attention they paid to his commands. Let me read that verse for you again. In Ahab's time, Hiles of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. And here's, here's a reference um, about Joshua. It's Joshua chapter 6, verse 26. They had just conquered and destroyed Jericho. And it says, At that time Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest son, he will set up its gates. This man, Hyle, chose to think this curse was not true or that its statute of limitations had expired or he just chose simply not to obey it. Jericho was located in a place that offered fertile soil, a ready source of water, and was a crossing point from the east. As such, the restoration of Jericho of the city was a lucrative proposition because of the traders and travelers that would pass through there. Without a doubt, Hyle had the approval of the king because of the revenue this city would produce for the kingdom. One has to wonder, because once he laid the foundation, his first son had died, if Hyle thought this, that this was just a coincidence or was willing to sacrifice the lives of two sons for the sake of monetary gain. Israel was a mess. The disturbing thing about their condition at this time, the sexual perversion, greed for gain, violence, rebellion, denying God, and following after others, sounds hauntingly familiar. In fact, the parallels with our, our own nation today are sobering. We've had a godly heritage, just as Israel did. Our constitution is based on the, 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 the scripture, the truth of God's word. And our founding fathers were, for the most part, men who revered God and respected righteousness. Our system of law and order was based on the laws of God. See, Israel is not the only nation in its tragic history to turn their backs on God. She is not alone in rejecting the righteousness required of her by a concerned and compassionate God. The sign of our times is a turning from God. Many in positions of power and notoriety would have us turn our backs on righteousness 
and reject the laws of God. Scorn and ridicule are the reward of those who seek to serve God. The Christian is viewed with contempt and viewed as mean-spirited, narrow-minded, and uninformed. Because of COVID-19, we read recently uh, about Samaritan's Purse setting up field hospitals in Central Park in New York City. And just in recent days, there have been some organizations that have objected to their presence there because of the stand they take on Scripture relating to sexual sin, homosexuality, same-sex marriage. And so these organizations have uh, registered complaints against the presence of Samaritan's Purse and the field hospitals in Central Park. I love the response, and I, and I don't have it before me, but basically this is what they said. We do stand on Scripture, yes, but never have we turned anyone away, no matter what their sexual orientation, their race, their language, their culture. Jesus called us to love people and to serve them, and that's what we're doing here. Well, slowly and steadily, we are becoming more preoccupied with sex and the perversion of this gift that God has given us. We are addicted to influence and greed for gain. The attitude of many is rebellious, and violence ceases to disturb us. Corruption and moral breakdown are destroying the foundations of our society grounded on reverence for God and His laws. Like Israel in Ahab's day, we're beginning to behave as if God does not exist. He is banned or ignored in most of our educational systems. He is regarded as irrelevant to our age of scientific technology. We are so caught up in our own plans and pastimes, so completely preoccupied with our own agendas and programs that God's purposes for us are often completely ignored. This was Ahab's condition when God's prophet burst onto the scene of his life. He had naively assumed that he and Jezebel could do anything they wished without interference from the Lord. Maybe because they had so blatantly rejected God's law and authority, they thought that he would go away. Well, they were wrong. God does not go away. The laws he has ordained for for us are for our benefit, with our best in mind. Flaunt God's laws and you will pay the price. Not because God is vindictive or violent, but because his eternal principles are inviolate. Um, We need to understand that God has built a, a moral universe. There are laws, spiritual laws, built into his universe, just as there are physical laws built into his universe. And just as if I were to say to you, I think I can jump off a ten-story building and land safely because I choose not to believe the law of physics and gravity, and we know what would happen when I finally reach the street, 
Nor can we say, I choose to ignore God's spiritual moral laws and not expect a negative consequence for doing so. Folks, it's built into the system. That's the way God planned it. He does not invent special punishments for people who ignore his laws. They are built into the system of the moral universe that God created. People may think they they break God's laws with impunity, but in truth, God's laws break those who transgress them. Well, one day, amid the fury and futility of Israel's foolishness, the prophet of God came and stood before Ahab. Elijah's first powerful announcement is this. The Lord God of Israel lives. Just in case you've forgotten, the Lord God of Israel lives. What a wake-up call. No cordial introductions, no idle conversation. Elijah gets right to the heart of the matter. God is not dead. He is not off attending some other part of the universe. He has not disappeared. He is alive, active, and at work. He knows what's going on, and he is concerned. Elijah didn't take time for introductions because this wasn't about him. It was about God. God was the one who was being ignored, mocked, and sinned against. Ahab and company had flaunted their wicked lifestyle, and now God would act. The second part of Elijah's statement is this. It is God that I serve. Before Ahab, Jezebel, and all in the palace, Elijah has flung down the gauntlet of his challenge. He was opposing and even defying both king and queen. He, Elijah, servant of the Most High God, would not be silent. He was making a statement that said, I reject the Baals and Ashtaroths, I will not bow down to them. My allegiance is only to Jehovah God of Israel, and I'm here because He sent me. He made it very clear where He stood and whom He served. Elijah was a man of action who obeyed God. I think the parallels between our nation and what Elijah faced are regrettably too similar. We must live our lives in the knowledge and assurance that God is alive. And because He is alive, He is in control, which means if God doesn't want something to happen, it won't happen. If He does want it to happen, it will. And if He wants something to be changed, it will be. That confidence in God will make the difference in the way we live and how we view life. And if we live that way... Others will see it. That thought is no more relevant than in the circumstances we find ourselves in this very day. An alive God is an active God. We must know and others must know that it is God we serve. That may not be too popular in our culture, but but it must be something that we ourselves are sure of. Is it clear to you who you serve. If it is, it may be a challenge to others. But remember, as one evangelist said, if you mess with me, you answer to the boss. Serving God means drawing the lines in different places than others do. It may mean standing alone. That's what Elijah did. 
He stood alone before King Ahab. If we are sure that we are serving God and are willing to go against the flow and stand alone, then we can be sure that God will act. It may not be in the way we expect, or it may not be when we expect, but He will act. The question is, are we willing to be Elijah's in our culture? We may not confront our culture in the same way Elijah confronted Ahab, For us, it may be taking a stand on a critical issue. It may be our opportunity to share Jesus with someone. It may be the fact that we're able to show love and care to those who are very different from us, live a different lifestyle, speak a different language, maybe live on the street. But we are willing to take a stand like Elijah did, even one that's not popular one that's not well accepted, one that may bring us criticism and ridicule. But if we are sure that we are serving God and are willing to go against the flow or stand alone, then we can be sure that God will act. Amen? Pray with me. Father, we, we come to you today understanding that you have called us to live differently than the culture that we're surrounded with. You've called us to be a holy people. And I believe that a holy people should stand out in our world. We are not to go with the flow. We are not to walk in what the Bible calls the broad way. But we are to live differently. We are to live according to the truth of Scripture, by your laws, your precepts, according to the way your Bible has said we should live. And so, Father, may may we be willing to stand alone. May we be willing to, to, to confess that we serve God and no other. May we be willing to be Elijah's in our culture, to confront that which is sin, that which degrades us, that which, Lord God, has the ability to, to bring our nation to ruin. May we be a positive, godly influence in the world where we live. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you again for those who are watching and listening. May God bless you.